Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13 and reading down to the end of the chapter. So hear the word of the Lord. So after they were gone, and, and they is referencing the passage before that, it's talking about the wise men, this, this massive entourage that came from Egypt, or came from the east. So after they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, he took his ch- the child and his mother and during the night, and they escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. And he gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, and keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. And then, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. And then after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray together. Father, once again, as we pray, each time we gather together, we need your help. We need your spirit to come and illuminate, Lord, open our eyes, not our physical eyes, but the eyes of our own heart. Open the ears of our own heart, God, and help us to hear and see who you are, what you are doing. Lord, help us to sense and feel this passage, God. And um, may you do your work in us, God. We just really desire you to do a great work in our lives. And so we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I don't know if you guys are uh, familiar with this little thing called coffee news. You guys know what I'm talking about? Looks like this. Uh, you can get it at Grater's, which is a great place to get some ice cream. Amen. One of my favorite places. Uh, you can get them at other places. I think you can get them at Kroger or whatever. Uh, but it's, it's just basically a, a local advertisement. But on this little coffee news is this little guy. And I don't know what this little guy's name is, but he's coffee news guy is what I'm going to call him. But uh, it's, it's kind of a little game. And so if you've never done this before, my kids love to do this. Uh, so you get the coffee news, and there's uh, another one of these. There's two of them. There's one that's hidden in the advertisement. He's a little bitty thing, really bitty. I mean, he's really small, and it's really hard to find him, and it's always a little game and a competition that our kids have over at Graders enjoying our amazing ice cream, is to try to find this little guy. Maybe this is kind of old school for us, right? Remember, where's Waldo, right? So you got, you know, uh, pictures like this, or even like they have books. You can go to Barnes & Noble and buy books with with this, which would be kind of annoying to me, but some people really enjoy that, and you're trying to find this, this guy right here, the Waldo dude. You're trying to find him in a sea of kind of humanity and, and all these uh, kind of colors. So, I mean, I know we're all pretty intelligent people, and you probably know where I'm kind of going with this, but 
Uh, here's what I would say. I, I would say this. I think there are seasons in our life, and some of you may be going through a season like this in your own life, a uh, season of confusion, uh, seasons of darkness, um, seasons of pain, seasons of suffering. And you're kind of asking the question like, where's God in this? It's really hard to seem. It's almost like you're looking on this page of coffee news on, of your life and you're really having trouble to see God in this. Or maybe sometimes, and, I, and I, I think this would be true of a lot of us in this room, maybe there's just pieces to your life and you look at these specific pieces of your life and you just can't make sense of this. Like, what is going on here? I mean, what is God doing? Why is this happening? Why is this still here? Where where it's even, even sometimes you can identify where you see God in other areas, but this one little piece in your life, it's almost like it's, it's, it's completely in front of you. And you can't see anything else, but you're always focused here going, where, where are you? I mean, when you read this passage of Scripture, even though, like I, I want to acknowledge, man, you see God's kind of hand in this passage of Scripture, but at the same time, what still kind of keeps coming to the top is like, where are you? I mean, last week, Lyle, you said that Jesus is the king of the world, and then you've got Jesus running away. It seems like someone else is in charge. It seems like someone else is calling the shots. This family just running in the middle of the night. I mean, sometimes we, we, we sentimentalize that, or we kind of like make it feel more hallmarky than what it was. Like, this is a a teenage girl, maybe 15, 16 years old, who is scared for her life and specifically for her own child's life. In the middle of the night, they're escaping to Egypt, not in a car, not on a main highway, like out in the middle of nowhere, being refugees, staying there. They don't even know how long. And then you got Herod. And this, is only re- this is the reason why they're running, because Herod's going nuts. Finds out that the wise men um, kind of tricked him. They didn't come back and tell him exactly where the, baby, the child was so he can go and quote-unquote worship him. So he runs and, you know, flies into this massive rage. I think the specific text says there he flew into a rage and orders the, the killing of all boys two years and under because he kind of figured out that Jesus would have probably been about two years old. So all the, those that lived in Bethlehem and the surrounding region got... Herod ordered them to be killed, and, and based on what we can see as far as population goes, that's about 30, 30 boys who were killed that night. Absolutely devastating, a horrendous act. And at the same time, and at the same time, if we're paying attention, it's not really surprising, isn't it? Is it? It's kind of par for the course in our history, isn't it? You look at the last hundred years, how many millions died under Stalin? Estimation is seven million, six million under the Nazi regime. Kind of par for the course. I mean, some Jewish historians don't even record this event that took place in Bethlehem. You know why? Most likely because of all the evil that Herod did in his reign, this was seemed kind of sort of insignificant. So that they even leave that out in a lot of historical documents during this time. It's kind of par for the course, so to speak. I mean, even in our day, guys, and this is what's shocking and um, alarming 
I mean, I don't even know how to put all the words to it, but even in our day, 2,000, 2,000 babies will be aborted today. That's a statistical average. I mean, that's, that's 100 times the evil of Herod. And look, I'm not, this is not a sermon about that. I, I, I'm going to make a point about it here in just a second. And I know that based on the stats, there's most likely women in this room right now who have had abortions. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilt or, you know, uh, set aside. Man, I'm glad you're here. And I would honestly say this is a place where we want you to find healing and rest and understand how even Jesus can come into your life and bring the kind of healing that you need. And that's not cliche, and I don't say that lightly. I mean that. I mean that. So I don't say this to shame you, but, I, but in some ways I, I want to shame our country to some extent where it costs 500 bucks to get an abortion and 20000 dollars to adopt a child. When politicians cheer, then your heart needs to break for this. When politicians cheer when they pass a law allowing full-term babies to be aborted. Look, guys, if we're paying attention, right, you you have to ask the question, where where is God in that? What's going on here? And it's not just out there, right? Just like we said in the early on, it's also in our own lives. Like if we're paying attention, and sometimes we don't want to pay attention. It's kind of like I, I, I do with my house sometimes. I hear a weird noise downstairs, something strange. Hopefully nothing's leaking. But I really don't want to go down there and find out, right? It's kind of like what we do with our cars. Ah, that's weird. I'm just going to keep driving, right? And I think sometimes we do that with our own lives. Like when we're, we're unwilling to kind of sit and ask some really difficult questions because I think we're afraid of where that may take us. So look, this is what I, what I, what I want to try to do, right, today. I, I don't think... I don't think I can answer the question, where is God in all these situations in its fullest? Like, I, I mean, that's a, that's a massive topic. I, th- I think there are answers that the Bible gives to us. I think there's answers in the book of Matthew. It's one of the reasons why we're working for this book, all right? But I, I'm kind of keeping myself anchored in chapter 2 here. And so in chapter 2, what do we see here that maybe a better word to say is this, um, instead of like trying to answer the question, where is God, What does Matthew show us here to help us make sense to the apparent absence of God in the midst of dark times, suffering, pain, and the evil of the world? I'll say that again because those words are really important. So how can Matthew help us make sense to the apparent? It's a very important word. The apparent absence of God in seasons of life where it seems like He's not there. So here's one. These are all kind of uh, written more uh, applicational driven, all right? The first one is this. Let us not be naive by the suffering we will endure. Not may, will. 
And let us not be naive by the hostility we will face. So that's the first observation. We're not going to be naive about the suffering we will endure and the hostility that we are going to face. And I know some of you may think, ah, I'm not naive about that. I've read my Bible. I've got verses. I've lived life. I've got all this stuff figured out. Well, thank God you're here, and maybe we can glean from your wisdom. But I still think naivety is still present in all of us in this area. And I think sometimes it's seen in our reactive responses to suffering. When hardship comes, what's our reactive response? And then when hostility comes, what's our reactive response? And I think those can kind of give us a clue that there's some naivety still present in us when it comes to these big issues. And I think there's two ways that we see it in this passage, how our naivety kind of comes out. The first one is this. Our naivety kind of comes out by believing that Jesus' birth got rid of all evil. Or another way of saying that, that we believe that with Jesus entering into the world, then all evil has been eradicated. And that's not true. Evil has an expiration date by the coming in of Jesus, but evil and darkness has not been fully eradicated. So the best way I can kind of uh, help understand this a little bit, we went to Colorado a, a few years ago um, as a family, really enjoyed our time there. And I don't know if you've ever been to Colorado, never, or when you dr- we drove, we didn't fly in, we, we drove, took that long 20-plus-hour trek. Woo, brutal. Um, but we, we made it in there. I don't know if, you, if you've ever been to Colorado. When you get across the state line, one of the first things you do is what we did is you pull over. Well, we passed it. We passed the sign. So we had to take the exit and come back down and, and get out and take it. We knew it was coming. Like, we kept counting down the mileage. You know, you see the five miles, five, and then we're like, oh, there it is. It's like, and you missed it. And so uh, we, we came back around and, and took our pictures. But then you get on the road, and you're like, for about three hours, nothing. It's flat. It's like you're going through Kansas. It's boring. It's just like awful. I'm like, this is so, it's prettier in Kentucky. I mean, seriously. Like, there's nothing, just flatness. And then you get about 40, 60 miles away from Denver. Oh, my. It's beautiful. I mean, the mountain range is just, like, you, you're, like, almost wrecking. You know what I'm saying? Because you, you can't keep your eyes on the road. It's just stunning. And, in your, and when you're approaching it, from your perspective, it looks like all these mountains are on top of each other. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're just right there. But once you get kind of in it, right, you get to Denver, you start driving through some of those interstates in there, you realize these mountains are, oh, wow, that's about 100 miles away, right? Your whole perspective changes, doesn't it? So from one perspective, coming into Denver, they're on top of each other. Once I get in there, wow, there's a big, huge space between the two. In a Jewish mind in this time, their understanding of the Messiah was that when the Messiah showed up, he's going to kick some butt. That's kind of my interpretation, but that's what he was going to do. Like, he's coming in to kick some butt. He's going to establish his rule He's going to kick out Rome, and he's going to get us back to the glory days like we had during David. And it's almost like their perspective was the incoming of Christ brought about the judgment and the kingdom of God established immediately. Like those two mountains, kingdom, Jesus coming in, 
kingdom of God established in full, we're side by side, back to back. But in reality, what we see is they're like this. Jesus comes in, starts his kingdom, and we'll see all this in the book of Matthew, through his life, death, burial, resurrection, begins, but the incoming fully of his kingdom is further on. And now we live right here in this in-between. And while we're living in this in-between, there's pain. There's suffering. There's death. Jesus' birth did not eradicate it. It gave it an expiration date. One writer puts it like this. Perhaps no event in the gospel more determinatively challenges the sentimental depiction of Christmas than the death of these children. Jesus is born into a world in which children are killed and continue to be killed to protect the power of tyrants. The victory of the resurrection does not mean that these children are any less dead or their parents are any less bereaved, but rather, resurrection makes it possible for followers of Jesus not to lie about the world that we believe has been and is being redeemed. So our naivety can show itself by believing that when Jesus was born into the world, that all evil was eradicated. No, it wasn't. He gave it a deathly blow. And there's an expiration date coming where his kingdom will be fully established and there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more pain like this. The second way that we kind of show our naivety is by believing that I can follow Jesus and be liked by the world. Notice I didn't say love. That I can follow Jesus and think that I'm not going to ever get any hostility toward the world. That if I'm just nice enough and kind enough, everyone's going to like me. That's naive thinking. I mean, when did all this begin to happen for Joseph and Mary? I mean, they're living normal life. Get ready, get married, going on dates. I love you. You're so beautiful, right? That's what's going on. And then Jesus entered their life, literally for Mary, right? And for the lack of better words, all hell broke loose, right? They got to go into Bethlehem. They land in Bethlehem, and they don't have a place to stay. They have birth in a cave without any family, without a midwife, without any epidurals, right? Nothing. And then they're kind of living in this town, and Joseph gets a dream. Get out. Here comes Herod. Grab the family or just the wife and the kid. Escape in the middle of the night to Egypt. They hear about these two-year-olds being slaughtered. Can you think about the guilt that Mary probably carried from that? That my child made it out? And these other 30 moms and dads didn't? And then they end up settling in Nazareth. And, and, and what we kind of think is they, oh, they live happy ever after, a nice little family, 
No, my goodness gracious. Can you imagine the kind of rumors and this cloud of like shame that was on this couple? Oh, yeah, yeah, she's the one that got pregnant out of wedlock. Oh, yeah, yeah, she slept around. She's loose. God didn't come through an angel and give everyone in Nazareth a dream to vindicate Mary. Jesus, when he was 11 years old, didn't like take down people when they're saying bad things about his mom, right? Like, what'd you say? <laughs> that didn't happen. Look, whenever we identify with Christ, whenever Christ comes in our life, the hatred of the world that Jesus experienced will be ours also. And we're naive to think that we can follow Jesus and be liked by the world. And Matthew, I mean, Jesus will get to this in Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew gets to this when Jesus talks about the Sermon on Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he says this. Look what he says in verse 11. You are blessed. I mean, this is so not like us, right? You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. You're blessed. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is going to be great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look, I don't want to give us like this weird persecution complex where we think that anytime we face hostility, we check it up as following Jesus. Sometimes you face hostility because you're a jerk. Amen? <laughs> Let's just be real, right? Sometimes you're facing hostility because you're not walking in the step of the spirit, you're walking in the step of your own flesh and then you get people treating you badly. So let's not, let's be honest about that, all right? Let's not say, well, I'm, I'm suffering for Jesus. They keep yelling, well, you know, be kind for crying out loud, right? Show up to work on time and maybe your boss won't yell at you, amen, right? It's like, that's not persecution. That's stupidity is what that is. But here, but listen to me. But we are fooling ourselves if we think we can follow Jesus and be at peace with the world. It just will not happen. That's not what happened with Mary and Joseph. Their life probably got worse when Jesus entered their life. And that's what Jesus tells us in John 16. What do you say? I've told you these things. Why? So that in me you have peace. In this world, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have trouble. Why is that, Lyle? Because the world loves a savior. They don't love a king. The world loves the idea of someone kind of getting me out of my mess, but I don't want someone telling me what to do. The world kind of likes advice because you can take and leave advice, right? You can hear someone's advice say, ah, that's stupid. Moving on. You don't know what you're talking about, right? Or you can hear advice, oh, that sounds awesome. But when a king comes and issues a command, it's way different. Sometimes we can show our naivety by believing that I can genuinely follow Jesus and be a friend of the world. I mean, that's, that's hard for all of us no matter what our age is, Right? I mean, make the implications out. Draw it out. If you're a middle school or high school student here, it's going to be hard. 
If you're going to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ in that dark place, it's going to be really hard. If you're an adult here, you may be overlooked at a promotion. Why? Don't ever say this, but possibly because you're a Christian. So look, how do we at best begin to make sense of the apparent absence of God in the midst of suffering and pain and difficulty? Well, we're not going to be naive. We're not going to be surprised by the suffering that we will have to endure and the hostility that we are all going to face. We're not going to be shocked by that. No. We see it right here in Matthew chapter 2. Secondly, to help us kind of make sense of the apparent absence of God here and where is he in times of suffering, and this is where we're landing the plane here, it is this. Um, let's not grow cynical. Let's guard our hell, our, ourselves from cynicism that we have toward life, especially during seasons of darkness and difficulty, because we can't see meaning. Are you following me a little bit? Let's, let's not grow cynical toward life, specifically life with God, when we can't uh, specifically or can't point a reason or a purpose or meaning for the suffering and the pain that I'm enduring. Because cynicism comes about when we when we're going through something and we can't figure out why. We can't figure out a point to this. We can't figure out what the purpose of it is. And whenever we can't necessarily figure out the point of it or the purpose of it, what grows in us is cynicism. And it's not like we, we go around saying, hey, I'm a cynic. Raise my hand. You, no, but it comes out. You feel it in you. You hear a story of how God brought about a specific rescue or salvation or brought about an answer to prayer in a specific situation in their life, then what's going on in your world when that's happening? I would say if you're going, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. That's just coincidental. Yeah, yeah, but God didn't do this for me. He didn't do that there. He didn't say this. He didn't make that happen for me. What is that? That's cynicism. And, and guys, look, we're not immune to this. It's in all of us. I mean, because you think about it, like if all we have is Herod's story, the slaughter of the innocents, that's all we got. If all we have is this young couple randomly, aimlessly, going all over the place, Egypt, back to Israel, back to Nazareth, you know, first started in Bethlehem. You know, so if that's all we have, then we're going to be cynical. There's no point to this. This seems meaningless. This is aimless. There's no reason for this, and we can become jaded. But Matthew helps guard this for us. He does, as crazy as it sounds, Right? He does. And the way that he does it in this little section is this little word, fulfill. I tried to emphasize it when I did the reading. Three times. Five total if you count chapter 1 through chapter 2. But three times in verses 13 through 23, 
What does he say? Fulfill. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. This is to fulfill. And so Matthew's doing something with these three kind of fulfillment things. And we got to kind of expand our understanding of what that word means there. Because usually when we hear fulfillment, we think what? There's a prediction in the past, and it came true in the future. And that is true. And Matthew uses it like that. And you see it in chapter 1, where he talks about the, 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 the virgin will give birth. I'm butchering it. End of chapter 1. You know what I'm talking about. Verses 18 through 25. You can go home and read it. But that's kind of like a, a, a prediction in the, the past that came true in the future. But that's not the only way to think about fulfillment. And it's not the only way that Matthew thinks about fulfillment. There's a much broader, nuanced understanding other than there was a prediction in the past that came true in the future. One writer puts it like this, who does a better job of explaining these kind of things than I do, but listen to what he says. The way the Jewish scriptures, which he's referring to the Old Testament here, are recontextualized and reread and reunderstood in light of Jesus is varied. Sometimes predictions are fulfilled. That's the way we normally think about it. Prediction now fulfilled. While sometimes texts are taken up and reapplied in a new way and everything in between. And we see Matthew doing it here. And so I'm going to show this. And this is the part where it gets a little technical and I can't do enough gymnastics up here to keep you with me, all right? And there's no fun little stories where I'm going to make you laugh here. Just, just stay with me. It's really important. I'm making a big point here with this. And I think Matthew's trying to make a point. So three of them, fast. Verse, chapter 2, verse 15 is the first place where we see Matthew talk about fulfilling. He says this, He stayed there until Herod's death so that, why? What was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be, there it is, say it out loud, out of Egypt I called my son. That comes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And if you go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, guess what? It's not a prediction. It's not. In the context, it's a past reference to the Exodus. That's what it is. It's not Hosea predicting that Jesus is going to be popping out of Egypt. That's not what's going on there. So what is Matthew doing? Well, here's what Matthew's doing. This is what's so beautiful. He is reflecting upon this route that Jesus and his family are taking. And here's the route. Jesus goes from the promised land, Israel, to the land of escape, Egypt. Then, like a second Moses... And kind of like a second exodus, Jesus is called up out of Egypt to return to the land of promise. And so as Matthew is reflecting upon this route that Jesus has taken, he's going, oh my goodness, this is the new Israel. This is Israel's story coming to full completion in Jesus. Jesus' story is Israel's story. Israel's story is finding its full completion in Jesus' story. And he's able to make these connections in the Old Testament that he had never been able to make before. One writer says it like this. As Matthew chapter 1 taught that the new Genesis by the birth and the promised son of David and the son of Abraham, so... Matthew chapter 2 teaches the new exodus in the migration in and out of Egypt by Jesus, this new and better Moses. Jesus is not just Israel's leader like Moses, but he himself is the true Israel. The culmination of all the stories of Israel are found in one person, and that one person is Jesus. And through Jesus, God himself is going to bring about a greater 
deliverance. And over and over, you'll see this kind of like Israel's story feels like Jesus' story all throughout Matthew. The next time we run into Jesus, which will be in the middle of chapter 3, he's at the Jordan River. Ah, that sounds like something really familiar. Sounds like the nation of Israel was at the, yeah, thank you. It was a trick question. Thank you for doing that. At the Jordan River when they went into the promised land. And here's Jesus. Oh, wow. He's at the Jordan River. And then the very next chapter, guess where Jesus is? He's in the wilderness. And how long was he in the wilderness? Forty days. And what was going on in the wilderness? Being tested. Oh, that sounds like something else. The nation of Israel was in the wilderness for how long? Forty years, not 39. Not 38. Not 32. Forty years. And what were they doing? Being tested. I'm not making this stuff up. Matthew's making all kinds of crazy connections here that he had never seen before until Jesus broke into the world. Another one we see. Skip down to verse 17. Then, just talking about like the, the slaughter of the innocents there, the two-year-old boys. Uh, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. There's our word again. Boom, 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 fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. What in the world is Ramah, right? What is that? What are you talking about? Is that noodles, right? What is that? <laughs> Ramah, thanks. I am doing a little bit of help with us here. Ramah is a, is a, is a location, all right, um, that's really close to Bethlehem. And most likely, they say this is where Rachel, which we'll get to in just a second, her tomb is. And Rachel, in case you need just real quickly here, Rachel is the favorite wife of Jacob who spent 14 years trying to get this this Rachel, because he loved her so much. It, Laban was a psycho and did all kinds of things, all right? So was Jacob. He was a psycho also. They were all psychos, amen? So we have a, a whole lot of psychos. But uh, Rachel was the favorite wife of Jacob, and Rachel had two boys, and their boys' names were Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph was the oldest, and Benjamin was the youngest. And actually, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And most, most people believe that her tomb was in Ramah, but it's not only, that's not only what else is going on. When, the, when Judah was taken into exile to go to Babylon, when Babylon came and took over their hotel city, guess where they gathered? Ramah. A site of weeping. A site of mourning. As families are torn apart. Some people stayed and some went off into exile. That's why we go on and read a voice was heard in Rama weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now here's the thing, man. This is out of Jeremiah chapter 31. I encourage you to go and read this. Here's the thing. Uh, the connection of this and what Matthew is saying is a little unclear. It is because understanding she refused to be consoled because they were no more, it, it, it's hard to kind of reconcile what all is going on here with Herod's you know, killing of two-year-olds. So, so here's what we know. Jeremiah is not predicting Herod's killing. He's not. He's talking about an event that took place in the life of Israel. But he's making some connections here. And I think what Matthew is wanting us to reflect on is that, is that even in the midst of great tragedy that brings about great mourning and weeping, like Herod killing two-year-old boys and the tragedy and the weeping, the mourning that's happening with moms and dads there, just like what we see in Jeremiah 31 when the exiles are being, when the nation of Judah is being taken away into Babylon and moms and dads are weeping and mourning, there's also a line of hope because in the full chapter of chapter 31 in Jeremiah, there's a new covenant being promised 
where God said, I'm going to bring these people back. I'm going to bring my people back, and they're going to, they're going to have a, a new heart where the commands of God are going to be written on their heart and lives, and they're going to be my new people. There's, there's, a, there's in that chapter weeping and mourning, but at the same time there is hope, and that's what's going on in Matthew chapter 2. Yes, horrendous, horrible action. Two-year-old boy slaughtered. But there's the child where our hope rests, who is being saved. So even in the midst of difficulty and pain and hardship, there's hope. There's a, there's a mountain that we're coming to. It's, it's far off, but we're getting there. There's hope. The last one, and I'll be really quick here, guys, is in the end here in verse 23, and he says this. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth. To what? There's our word again. To fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, plural, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, here's the catcher. If you would go and search your Old Testament through some kind of computer search and try to find that, guess what? It's not there. <laughs> There's nowhere in the Old Testament where that says that. Nowhere. It's crazy, isn't it? That's why I think he says prophets, plural, and not prophet, because I think... Right? I think, I'm not totally sure, someday I'll ask Matthew when the new heavens and new earth, but I think what he's trying to help us see, this is kind of a theme that the prophets talked about, that the Messiah would be one who is despised and rejected and acquainted with grief and suffering. And he grew up in a little town called Nazareth. And we know by the reputation of Nazareth is that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. It's like growing up in Lebanon Junction. Amen? That's where I grew up. Nothing good comes out of LJ by God's grace. I escaped, have no idea, right? And if you're from LG, LJ, I, I don't mean that bad. I, I grew up there, so I can say something bad about my home if I need to. But that's kind of like um, the reputation of Nazareth. And so just think about this. That Jesus' kind of last name, he would be referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Just having that name, that word attached to it, invited ridicule. pain, dismissal, and maybe even actual abuse. So here's, here's what I'm trying to say with all these three fulfill elements. And I'm done. You guys have been fantastic. I want you to step back and see kind of the larger picture because we can get lost in the weeds, all right? We can get lost with all, what's he meaning here? The larger picture is this. History is both cyclical and linear, Cyclical in this sense. There are things we repeat. I mean, if you studied history, you repeat things. We, we do. We're, we're dumb. Man, we, we do all the time. We, never, we don't learn from history. Maybe some we do and some we don't. You know, I, I hear all the time of how this administration, presidential administration, is just awful and horrible. And there's some truth in that. Yes, I, I'm, I, I hear that. But at the same time, if you would study history, and if we had access like we do today to all the stuff that goes on, our presidential stuff, you would see there were some pretty jacked up presidents in the past also. Amen? So like, I, don't, don't send me an email and kind of freak out about it. I'm just trying to make you understand that there, it's cyclical, all right? Yeah, it's pretty bad, but there's been other times when it's pretty bad. It's just been bad since Genesis 3. Amen? Can we not say we're not in this upward trajectory to greater? No, in some ways we are. In other ways, we're just as bad as we were. You know, goodness gracious, the world's just what, moving on. All right, all right, so here's a cyclical thing, but at the same time, it's linear, 
And in that linear history has an author. And that author is God himself. And he's taken all the brokenness and pain and suffering and wickedness that he's not the author of. And he's using that to bring about his goodness, bringing about his kingdom. He is taking that and making it a, that's a linear, it's, it's his story, guys. It is his history that he is winning. And in case you don't know this, I'll spoil it for you. God wins. He, he wins. Even though it may seem really dark and bleak and we're not sure, God wins. Now, how do you know that, Lyle? Where, where, where are you getting all that? And where is Matthew coming to, to play here? It's like this. Here's what Matthew did. He took this massive plate full of spaghetti called the Old Testament. A lot of loose ends. Amen? Right? And he goes back and shows how all of those connect this story of redemption that God was writing. Yeah, it looked like a plate full of spaghetti, but Jesus inbreaks and it all makes sense. And that is not only true kind of out there, but that's true of you if you're in Christ. There are pieces in your life, guys, I'm telling you, I know there are that feel like they don't fit, that they don't connect. And here's the thing you've got to know, and I don't want to be like Debbie Downer here, but here's the thing you've got to know. You may never know why in this life. You may never get a reason in this life. You may never know the purpose of that specific event in this life. You may never know, quote unquote, the lesson you're supposed to learn, which I don't Love that, because I just, I don't, there's other reasons why I don't love that. But you may never know that. But to keep us from going cynical, we've got to go to passages like Matthew chapter 2 and say, oh, wow. I don't get it. I don't fully understand it. But God is weaving his story of redemption in my life. And someday, someday I'll see how those connect. So how, how do I make sense, right, to the apparent absence of God sometimes? Well, we're not going to be naive. We're not. We're not going to be naive to the suffering that we will have to endure and the hostility we will face. Jesus didn't eradicate all evil, but he did give an expiration date. You will suffer. There will be difficult days. And we're not going to grow cynical just because we can't see meaning. Because we can go to a passage like this and say, wow, no, God's at work. He's weaving his story in my life. I don't fully see it, but he's doing a work and I'm going to trust him. Let's pray. So, Father, I just ask that each of us in this room would just take a, take a moment and just examine our own hearts and see where um, naivety may be or even more um, possibly harmful cynicism. And may you just give us a, a moment here, God, 
to kind of sit with that and ask for your spirit's help and healing here. Father, we give us eyes to see. Help us to see your invisible hand and how it's at work in this world and in ours. In Jesus' name we pray.